0: Welcome, everyone, and welcome to the launch of our new strategy for the LSE, LSE 2030. This is a fantastic opportunity to celebrate the school, both our extraordinary history, but also, more importantly, how we can shape the future. And it seemed particularly appropriate to do it in the old theatre, which many of us are (laughs) sentimental about. It has been host to so many people who have shaped the world from Mahatma Gandhi, to Nelson Mandela, to Bill Gates, to our guests this evening. And I'm really delighted that so many friends of the school are in the audience tonight. And that, particularly, I wanted to thank our alumni, our donors, and our partners, who give so generously of their time and their energy to, to support the school so very generously, from coordinating our global networks, to supporting our students through mentoring and placements and scholarships enabling the recruitment of world-class faculty and addressing significant who are sig- addressing significant global challenges and helping us to develop our new campus i wanted to just give you a preview of our new 2030 strategy and particularly why it comes at a critical time in the world and to outline the three pillars of that strategy and to show how we have recommitted to the LSE's founding purpose, which is to be a community of people and ideas founded to know the causes of things for the betterment of society. Thanks to many of you here today, LSE 2030 has been the the largest consultation in the the school's history. We had over 1,800 submissions from staff, faculty, alumni and students that contributed to shaping our future strategy. And the timing of it couldn't be more relevant. Across the world today, you know, you read the newspapers. Well the world's a bit of a mess. Um, <laughs> we <laughs> we uh, we're we're living in a world in which many of the foundations of progress that many of us have enjoyed uh, are being challenged. We see populist politicians who are peddling prejudice, paranoia, and false promises. And the negative side effects of technology and globalization are resulting in some people arguing for much more closed societies. And independent institutions, like universities, like the media and like the judiciary, are under attack everywhere. At best, there is indifference to those who have the knowledge and the skills and the evidence to inform better decisions. At worst, there is outright hostility to experts who are seen as part of a malevolent elite. And that's a problem for us because universities are basically factories for producing experts. That's our core business. And this comes at a time when the world faces huge challenges. Climate change, rising inequality, threats to democracy and stability. And so the world needs the social sciences now more than ever. And we also need some real thinking about alternatives to create a fairer, healthier, and more inclusive society. So that's the context in which we thought about LSE's future strategy. And it it resulted in our ambition to be the social science institution in the world that has the greatest global impact. So let me take you through very quickly the three key pillars of that strategy before starting a conversation with Ruth. The first is that we will educate for impact, and that means recognizing that our students have the potential to change the world, not only after graduation but while they are here. The LSE Changemakers Program, which we're delivering in partnership with our student union, provides funding for students to conduct independent research to shape improvements at LSE and beyond. And we'll build on this to help our students be active researchers, developing their analytical skills, their cultural and entrepreneurial and ethical confidence, and equip all of them, all of them, with the digital skills and training and platforms so that they can showcase what they can do, including through our newly launched Houghton Street Press, which will be run by our students. Now, for most people, coming to the LSE is the most international environment they have ever been in. And building on that, we will increase student mobility opportunities to both study and work overseas. And through our enhanced executive courses, we will, uh, and, and, and summer school and online courses, we want to build a bridge from student learning to learning for life. And to support our alumni, friends, and partners to access the intellectual capital of the LSE, enabling them to refresh and adapt their skills as their careers evolve. The LSE has also been recognised as being the best in the UK at increasing our intake of students from underrepresented and underprivileged backgrounds, and we've been ranked the best in the UK at doing that for two years in a row by an independent think tank. And to fully support that, we're committed to increasing our provision for students from underprivileged backgrounds through bursaries, awards, and scholarships. And in support of that objective, we are delighted to announce today that Ruth Porat, our distinguished speaker, and her husband, Anthony Paduano, who is sitting modestly in the back, (laughs) have generously committed to establish an endowed scholarship fund for women students from disadvantaged backgrounds. So thank you, Ruth and Anthony, for your generosity. This is really a fantastic opportunity to give young women from around the world an opportunity to fulfill their potential. So the second pillar of our strategy is research for the world. Now, LSE has a reputation for being international, interdisciplinary, issue-oriented, and pioneering in the development of new disciplines and methodologies. And at LSE, we're not afraid of a good argument. We like open debate uh, and we like a global perspective and we like intellectual rigor that isn't afraid of controversy. And so we'll continue to convene global leaders, world-class intellectuals, and the general public to engage in the crucial issues of the day. As an example of that, the recent LSE Festival, which we held called New World Disorders, brought together researchers, experts, and about 5,000 members of the public to debate current global issues, and included millions of people who participated online through our podcasts and websites. Now, we don't know all the answers, but we're also going to work with others, and we're doing that this evening. Alongside this event, we've been holding a public lecture in our wonderful new center building with Michael Ignatieff, Pippa Norris, and Andres Velasco, debating the causes and responses to populism. Now, of course, not all borders are international, and the things that divide us are often not international borders, and global doesn't preclude the UK. It's just as important that we work both locally and nationally to tackle social divisions that we see around us. Tomorrow, on the same day that young people around the world are going to be participating in a global climate strike, Professor Nick Stern of and our Grantham Institute here at the LSE will be hosting a discussion to help students think about what communities, schools and universities can do to address climate change. And thanks to the transformational philanthropy of Jeremy Grantham, we're building upon that legacy and the impact of the Grantham Institute. Environmental sustainability is a key concern for us as part of our new strategy. And Nick has kindly agreed to chair a sustainability group here at the LSE to help us inject sustainability in everything we do. LSE is committing to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, but in fact we're going to achieve net zero for our scope one emissions, the emissions we directly control at the school given with the fuel that we use on campus, well before 2030. And we're already close to net zero for our scope two emissions because we buy 100% renewable electricity from solar, wind, and hydro. The challenge for everyone is tackling scope three, the emissions that you don't control, but we're thinking very hard about how we're going to achieve that, too. And finally, we want to continue to develop LSE for everyone. And this means investing in our outstanding buildings and facilities, building a lifelong relationship with our diverse and far-reaching community, and ensuring all students, staff, and alumni, friends, and partners feel they are part of the LSE community everywhere and forever. The new center building which I hope some of you have had a chance to visit is already transforming our campus providing world-class space for students for faculty and visitors and our wonderful new alumni center which I hope the alumni in the room have had a chance to see. Thanks to the leadership of Paul of leadership philanthropy of Paul Marshall this will be followed in 2021 by the by the beautiful new Marshall Building, which will have new teaching and learning facilities, and for the first time, having decent sports and arts facilities (laughs) for our (laughs) students. (laughs) (laughs) Won't that be nice? (laughs) And we're also working busily away on plans to create a global hub on Lincoln's Inn Fields, a modern-day agora for the world using cutting-edge physical and digital technology to serve as a forum for high-quality debate through public events, podcasts, and curating online discussions through social media around the world. We also want it to be a place that provides tailor-made facilities for executive education and data sciences. So, those are the highlights. I am incredibly proud to be leading and serving this great institution and helping shape its future there are challenges ahead. It is a very messy world. But what happens at the LSE has the potential to shape the world. And I believe that a world shaped by people and ideas from the LSE will be a better world. So, thank you. So, speaking of world shaping, let me turn to Ruth Porat. So, uh, let me say a few wor- words about Ruth's background, and then we'll, we'll have a little bit of a conversation about current issues. So, those of you who are here probably know that Ruth is the CFO and Senior Vice President of Alphabet and Google, and she's held that role since 2015, and before that, she was Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at Morgan Stanley, where she held a series of senior roles in investment banking, technology, and financial Institutions. She holds a BA from Stanford University and an MBA from the Wharton School, but most importantly, <laughs> <laughs> most importantly, <Completely> agree. <laughs> she holds an MSc from the London School of Economics, where she met her husband, Anthony, who is also an LSE <laughs> alumna. So the LSE features prominently in your, in your life in many, many ways. <laughs> so, Ruth, you've heard a little bit about what we're thinking of in terms of our 2030 strategy, and particularly this focus on how can the LSE have the maximum global impact. So from where you sit at Google and Alphabet, what do you see as the biggest challenges that we're facing over the next few decades, and what are the biggest opportunities, and what should we at the LSE be focusing on?
1: Well, I think you covered so many of the areas that we're focused on. At Google, I'm sure it comes as no surprise. Can you hear me all right? So make sure I have this. Um, At Google, we're technology optimists. We believe that technology can be applied to the biggest issues of our day and meaningfully improve the lives for billions. And we are similarly focused on what could be the negative unintended consequences of that technology and are motivated to risk mitigate those so that we really can deliver the upside from technology. And I'm just going to pick up on two of the areas that you commented on. One, we're very focused on sustainability. Um, We match 100% of our energy consumption with renewable energy. We're the largest corporate purchaser of renewables. Our view is sustainability needs to be built into everything that we do. And that means that the way we think about our data centers, the way we look at our products, the way we look at our supply chain, the way we build our buildings and think about every element of uh, food and transit and, uh, and all that we're doing in our philanthropy work. The way we're looking at technology and applying technology on top of that is, as an example, we're using AI to reduce energy consumption in our data centers. And what we've found is even though we're operating what we believe are the most efficient data centers with AI, you can actually achieve 30 to 50 percent reductions in energy consumption. And that's then an insight that one can use in other manufacturing areas. And so we do think that applying technology to this core societal issue, as you said, one that's at the top of your list, is a real opportunity. The other area you talked about is uh, the the digital divide. And one of the areas I'm very proud of is we have a program really started in Europe where we're providing digital skills training um, to people and really helping them understand the most basic of skills. One does not need necessarily to code, but you must have fluency with things like how do you create a presentation, how do you use spreadsheets, Mm -hmm. how does one understand the language of this. And so I had the opportunity to go up to my hometown. I was born in the north um, near Manchester and opened up a digital garage up there. That's what we call them. And it was the opportunity to provide digital skills training to people in need of it. And it was extraordinary, the people we met. Uh, There was one woman in particular. She had been a nurse and um, got a brain tumor. Um, Her name was Bernie. And uh, thought that she had no future. Uh, because she no longer could, could be a nurse. And when we brought her into the digital skills training program, not only did she then have the skills to get a new job, but it gave her the confidence that she had a future. And so I take that experience and the way you're thinking about every student needs to graduate and understand the basics of digital skills training so you can be adept in the workplace. The other element of it that's so exciting for me when I think about the LSE is when we talk about AI and the future of AI and the implications, it hits every industry and it creates an opportunity for every industry. The most important element in our view is that it is the combination of humanists, social scientists, and engineers that really creates the magic in AI, because what we don't want to do is just replicate everything that's in society today you want that diversity of thought to challenge core underlying assumptions so that as we're thinking about solutions we can take them to a better place and so the role of social scientists data insight and the challenge that comes from an interdisciplinary approach is really exciting so i think there's a lot of parallels between the way we're looking at challenges and the way you're defining it in LSE 2030. that's fantastic
0: let me turn to an issue that you've championed throughout your career which is diversity in the workplace. Um, What do you think we could do more to counteract exclusion and to promote diversity in a world that feels very, very divided at the moment, particularly in an academic environment? What should we be doing differently?
1: I think it starts with tone from the top and what type of representation do we each have in leadership positions. You know, my team, 50% of my team are women. And I think the message that sends to all the women coming up through the organization um, is profound. It shows the path they can can pursue. Your role here sets a model for what is possible. No doors should be closed to any of us. And so it does start with tone from the top, no question about it. But I think that most important complement to that is to put processes and policies and programs in place that really drive the kinds of outcomes that you want. So, for example, at Google, we have family leave policies. The view is that it is the opportunity for all partners, both partners, um, to to spend time with children, not the do- domain of one. Um, we, we have programs, for example, that I think are most important in um, succession planning, career planning. We call it the talent draft. So when you typically do succession planning, you'll look at who are your next up and you'll plan out a couple of years. Well, what if you don't have enough underrepresented candidates on them? Why? Is the issue that somebody needs a bigger stretch roll? Is it that they don't have visibility? Or is it bias? And until you actually put the rigor and policies around it, you're, you're actually not going to get where you need to go. And then I think the third point is, what are elements of unconscious bias? By definition, if it's unconscious bias, it, is, it may not be even ill intent, it is unconscious, it is feeding in and it is destructive. One area that I've talked a lot about in my career, because the first time I sort of thought about it, I thought it seemed petty to bring up, and that is how many of us have been in a room, how many of the women in this room have been in a room and a man talks over you? And I will say I've been there many times. Um, it's been a while because I learned a trick, which is, you know what the issue is it sounds petty to say you just spoke over me but if every time you go into a meeting someone speaks over you they're basically saying I don't want your voice and if you don't want my voice do you want me and it becomes a Mm -hmm. real grind and I think there are things like that where a simple movement let me finish or (laughs) let her finish and in particular when it's coming from men as well it's empowering I want the voice of everyone in the room and if diversity of thought Yields to better outcomes ensuring that you pull in all of those voices every underrepresented group also sends a message You're gonna make better decisions along the way. There's a lot of academic research that supports that Definitely. But it's also to your question. How do you ensure that you're sending the right message to everyone within the, uh, the organization?
0: Absolutely So let's turn to um, Education So. You and I shared a common story of having fathers who told us, education is the passport to life, they can't take it away from you, it's everything. How, uh, what message would you give to some of the students who are in this room, who, uh, who are just getting their passports for life, based on your experience?
1: Will never contradict a parent, so obviously, <laughs> that was right. Um, the, the background story on that is, my father was a Holocaust refugee. And um, he was in Austria during the war, was thrown out of his high school um, because he was Jewish. He ultimately fled to what was then Palestine, after Kristallnacht, when his father was taken away. He didn't have a high school or college education. As soon as he was old enough, he enlisted in the British Army. And while in the British Army, he said, if I ever want to get to a place where I can have freedom, I need a skill that's relevant. And so he started to teach himself physics. And he would tell us that his fellow soldiers would tease him and say, why are you spending your time doing this? You're going to die before you can use it. And he said, I would rather die an educated man. (laughs) And (laughs) after the war, um, fortunately, he was accepted into a master's program here in England. He was up at the University of Manchester in physics. And then he went on and got a PhD and ended up at Harvard and then at Stanford and spent most of his career at Stanford. And so the message to us as kids was that education really is a passport to freedom and to life. When Manish and I saw that our we got the same message from our parents. it was. One of those profound moments, but I think it's there's so much wisdom in that. It mm-hmm. is a passport for life. It opens so many doors. It's why we're, as and I are so passionate about making sure that everyone has access to the extraordinary education that one has here. I think the corollary I learned from my father in his later years is, is never stop learning, mm-hmm. and that really goes back to your first question. Mm-hmm. The world continues to change. Find ways to make sure that you continue to understand the key elements of it. He taught me also that much of life is jargon, and when you bust through the jargon, you can understand anything. And so this AI, machine learning, where's technology going, it's very basic once you just break it down and keep learning. Mm-hmm. So intellectual curiosity is, is yeah. imperative. Kay.
0: Well, what about um, what we're trying to do here at the LSC in terms of kind of modernizing our educational offer to look at much more at digital and entrepreneurial skills, which we think are essential for the next generation. At a place like Google, how do you, what do you look for when you're recruiting new graduates? What are the, what
1: are the skills and profiles that you are interested in? Uh, the most important, probably comes as no surprise, is excelling at whatever you've done. Because if you have the intellectual curiosity and the drive to be great at whatever it is you've done, Life isn't static. You'll do great at that next thing. So really just applying oneself um, at whatever they've done. We certainly look for people who understand the power of collaboration and cross-disciplinary work, because as I've already said, so much of this is about connecting the dots across geographies, across disciplines, across ideas. The basic fluency is important, but I don't want people to walk away saying, I need to learn how to be a machine learning engineer. It's like that's right. not what everyone does. And the power <laughs> and the magic of this, you know we talk about human-centered AI, truly is when you're able to bring in all of the disciplines. And when we look at AI, one of the, um, the impediments could be concern about where does it go? And it should be. You know as mm-hmm. I said at the outset, when we think about technology, we're technology optimists, but the most prudent thing to do, the most appropriate, the most responsible, is to think about what are the unintended negative consequences. And that's been true throughout history. Whenever there have been big breakthroughs in technology, you saw it with stem cell work, with IVF. You saw it with PCVs. There was this beautifully eloquent statement by um, President Kennedy, JFK. Um, When he was announcing the space program back in the 60s, he said, science has no conscience of its own. It's what we do with it for good or for ill. And so bringing in AI ethics in the A is is critical and the thinking that comes from the sciences and humanities, what does that mean? How do we ensure that we're protecting in the implementation? We put out earlier this year some principles around AI ethics and again it's that cross-disciplinary wisdom mm. that I think is um, so critical to it. So there are many ways that one can be smack in the middle of all of this. Mm. So
0: We've got lots of very ambitious students at the LSE, of course, and they're all incredibly talented. What what would you advise them in terms of uh, reaching the senior-most levels in, in organizations, given what you've seen? And I should also just add a caveat to that. You've also talked a lot about the importance of sponsors, uh, and what do you mean by that, and what role can sponsors play?
1: So a sponsor, um, to me, is somebody who takes a risk on you, somebody who will open doors that you don't even know uh, exists. Mm-hmm. And you know, I my early in my career, I was working on something at Morgan Stanley, and a couple months into it, realized I was working for somebody who basically was taking credit for all of my work, and <laughs> realized that working for the wrong person is a dead end. And so said, you know, I've got to kind of carve a path and find somebody who wants to take a risk on me, I've got to earn the right that they want to take a risk on me. Oftentimes these days somebody will come and say, will you be my sponsor? Will you earn that right? It's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. And it's critical because they can give you judgment and insight in ways throughout your career that you would otherwise miss. Every position that I've been offered that's meaningful, somebody who was a sponsor to me actually opened that door. And oftentimes I said, I'm not interested. And they said, that makes no sense. In fact, <laughs> the, um, the role I turned down without even hesitating was uh, to take over running the banking, um, banking advisory business, the what's called Financial Institutions Banking, back at Morgan Stanley. And that was in 2006. And I said, I'm, there's <laughs> no way I want to do this. And um, <laughs> maybe I should have stuck with my <laughs> gut, but the the, the the person who then became the president of Morgan Stanley said, but it's just like the technology business which I had run in that it's about a quarter of the global economy, it's multi-sector, you'll learn a lot about the world you've lived in. And sure enough, by 07, that's when the crisis started, if you were in banking, and that led to the, the the opportunity to advise the U.S. Treasury and then the Federal Reserve, and that led to the CFO role at Morgan Stanley, without which I wouldn't be where I am today. And it was really – somebody shook me and said, this is exciting. You should try this. And so yeah. that's that's what a sponsor is. I would say there's another part of that message, which is when I arrived at the LLC, I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to go to law school. <laughs> and then <laughs> Let's see where this is going to. Um, <laughs> And then I had an extraordinary experience here. And I ended up winning a grant. And I went up to Manchester again. I did something at, at Phillips Industries. And I realized, you know what, I, I don't want that path. I want to go a different way. And that concept of co- being open to new experience, new ideas, I think, is another element of getting ahead. You do that with a sponsor, somebody who's giving you that extra shot, I think, is absolutely critical. And I'd say one other point had another role it was on the trading floor which is a pretty inhospitable place for women Mm -hmm. and um, one of my sponsors said i will be your senior air cover i think you're going to soar but if you stumble i'm there to get you and i've used that line with people repeatedly throughout my career because Mm -hmm. i think we all need to be the senior air cover for someone Mm -hmm. and have someone who's applying it and i think that backstop mentality is really important so how do you get there be open have someone there and never stop asking. Kind of, what's my next best highest opportunity? And they'll open doors for you. Fantastic. So let me take you back to your LSE days, uh,
0: and uh, and the campus has changed a lot since we I were students. I've noticed a lot of you buildings. A lot of <laughs> buildings. Yes. When I'm being kind, I say the LSE used to be sort of shabby chic, but without the chic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but now we're like hip and modern and. Very different, um, but when you look back at your time, what's your sort of abiding memory of being on the LSE
1: campus? Well, you've already actually hit both of them. <laughs> I mean, the, the um, probably one of the most important is the sheer diversity of students here, the geographic diversity, what that meant in our discussion groups, the way I saw issues um, differently than I had before, and it was it was beautiful. It was an extraordinary group of students. Um, and then I met my husband uh, at Passfield Hall. So we love Passfield Hall. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was the dishwasher and bartender, as he <laughs> proudly tells everyone. Um, but um, so yeah, those are those are two biting memories. And let me
0: now turn to uh, you know you've talked a lot about what it takes to succeed in organizations, the key role of sponsors and 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 people who have. Been who give you air cover. When you look back on your career,
1: what's the best piece of career advice you've been given? <coughs> I've been given a lot, of, um, a lot of advice, and I think it probably is, is to try, it. it was really about trying something new. It constantly was about trying something new. And I think that's how we grow, and that's how we stay excited, and that's what keeps us young. Um, it is about continuing to stretch your mind, and uh, I think that every time someone's kind of encouraged, take that different path, take that different door, it's been exciting. I've given them the opening, and I think that's something for the students, I think, is really important. I didn't go in and say, I need X. What I said when was, what's my highest and best use if I want to keep learning? What's my highest and best use? And I think that's a really important way to think about it so that you're not rigidly asking someone, can I have this? May not be this. It may be something you haven't thought of. And then once you do that, they'll open doors. That's the best advice. Maybe
0: just final question for me. So you've kind of seen our blueprint for LSE 2030 and what we would like to do in terms of transforming this place and also doing our bit to transform the world. Um, and we're joined tonight by alumni and friends from all over the world, uh, many of whom have come very, very far to, to be here this evening. Um, for you, what, what makes you stay connected to the LSE? What's, your, what's the link that, that still that still matters for you?
1: Well, I think like many in this room, I had such an extraordinary enriching experience being at LSE. And the connections that I made here Um, are extreme beyond my husband, Um, (laughs) which is extreme. Um, One of my closest friends who used to bike all around London is now a professor at Stanford, Rosnaylor, who's focused on food security. We met here. But throughout life, what you're going to find is the connections continue to grow. And when I'm in any venue, um, I'm always looking to see what is, what's the background? And it just opens doors and makes the world a smaller place. So as an example, I met uh, Paul Volcker years ago, yeah. former chairman of the Federal Reserve, daunting figure. You know, daunting, for those, You know, six foot seven, two yeah. meters, um, to translate. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, with a just with it having accomplished so much, yeah. we had the LSC connection. And as a result, Anthony and I ended up getting to spend a lot of time with he and his wife, Anka, and he's just an extraordinary person. There is something about all of us going back to when we were kids here. Mm -hmm. In fact, a couple years after meeting him, we were at a dinner, a small dinner, about a dozen people hosted by another LSE alum, Jeffrey Goldstein, who was Mm -hmm. undersecretary of the Treasury, and he had uh, Stan Fisher, who had been governor of the Bank of Israel, we were all there. It happened to be the night before Stan Fisher was going to be publicly announced. As the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, and there was the group of us, and it was LSE, and we were all reminiscing. And so I just think again, the world is small and we're all connected, and just keep building those connections. It's extraordinary when you're in a a meeting, a dinner, and you see there's that spark, and it keeps it special. And it's I think we're we're fortunate to be here. We're so fortunate to have you in this leadership position for so many reasons. Um (laughs) Um, Moving oh my right over to you. That is true. I mean it does start with leadership. that's Thank a great you. great place. Thank you. Moving right along. <laughs>
0: uh <laughs> I'm going to open the floor to a few questions before we turn to our next speaker. So, I think uh I think the gentleman back there in yes, that one. I think okay. just sorry, in the uh blue blazer right there in front of the red the woman with the red shirt. Yeah. The, Hello Ruth. Um, it's uh, nice to have you back in London. Um, my question for you was, uh, I've read that you um, prize culture um, over rules and regulations of the culture choice for, for culture, um, and I know you're also a big um, sort of driver and ambassador for diversity. How do you join the two together? How do you use culture to promote diversity in, in, in Alphabet and Google?
1: So the reason I said I, I am a big believer that culture is more important than rules and regulations, I think I first said that when I was back at Morgan Stanley and, um, and going through the financial crisis. And the concept that somebody would establish rules and then good behavior would come, if you don't wake up in the morning with an ethos, which is how, what do I do on behalf of my customers, users, employees, communities, Nobody, it can't, you can't capture every moment. And that's why I think culture, at the end of the day, is what drives the right kind of behavior. Um, so as it relates to diversity, and to me, it, it is, the, the culture is a reflection, in part, of the way we comport ourselves every day. It has to be codified with the policies and programs you put in place. So the example I gave you, the succession planning, it's a lot of rigor, putting in place the gender pay equity work we do. Every time we go through a a review process, we look to see if there's bias in words. And so you have to put rigor around it. You can't just assume it's a natural outgrowth of a statement. Um, And until you put that rigor and financial investment in policies and programs, you don't necessarily end up with the kind of place you want. And then it's really about each one of us Having um, a backstop, as I described, when I'm in meetings, making sure I'm trying to have every voice heard. You can can take that for granted. I think it's one of the great principles, that whether it's in a classroom or in a meeting, make sure everyone has visibility. Make sure you're celebrating those people. And so you reinforce it in a host of ways. Very good. I
0: think there was a woman here. Yes. Someone once said to me, culture eats rule eats rules for breakfast.
1: <laughs> Great, thank you. Um, so you really sparked something in me when you mentioned about education being something that nobody can take away from you. Um, so similarly, my grandmother lived through the war in Italy and always said that to me when I was growing up. Um, and my grand- other grandmother uh, graduated from Manchester and she was one of the first women to do so. So I felt a, a bit of a connection there. <laughs> so you and Manoush spoke about how You have that passport. So my question goes a little bit beyond that, in terms of how you use that passport, how you use your LSE education. Um, So there's quite a few students, recent alumni in the room. Um, So my question is: one, what's one key idea that you learned here that you've successfully applied to your career? So I, um, I was in a classroom. Here. And the professor talked about doing an organizational design exercise on a boat, on a ship. And there was one woman, and it was all men. And he talked, this was a, I'm old, so this class was a long (laughs) time ago. Um, And he talked about how he, by the way he interacted with her, and this may have been a better answer to your question than the one I gave. The way he empowered her set an expectation for everybody else on the ship. And there was, um, it was a beautiful story. I don't remember anything else about the class, <laughs> but I do know that each one of us in the way we elevate and celebrate can make a difference. Not just giving that person, whatever, whoever that is, the confidence that they deserve a seat at the table and that their voice is wanted, but the opportunity to participate in whatever that the experience is. So for me, um, that's probably the one I, r- I remember the most. and I think we each do have a voice that we need to use.
0: I'm going to take one more. I think the gentleman behind that had his hand up. and then we'll I'm sorry we don't have time for, for all of them. Just right there. He his hand up.
1: Uh, thank you, director, for your vision and leading us uh, forward. And maybe related to a point you alluded to a little bit earlier, Uh, in the transformational age that we now live, communications, technologies have led the way to make how we work and play infinitely more productive. However, at a higher level, whether we are talking about communities or nations, the art of governing seems yet to be enhanced by the improvements in how we make better, more informed decisions. I'm just wondering, is there hope for a better tomorrow as we look to LSE's challenge moving forward and the role that wonderful organizations like Google can play as well. So I think there's there's a lot in that um, I could take that question in a lot of different directions. as I said my first comment is we're technology optimists so we believe we can. We also know that there are quite a, a you know there quite a number of forces that want to take advantage of these platforms. It's our responsibility to do everything we can to continue to up the bar on ourselves so that it is productively used in the best ways. We live with the mantras internally um, to respect the user and respect the opportunity. And for us, some of the key principles there are around the, uh, the, the nature of data. It is your data. It is the user's data. So everything we can do to up the bar on privacy, is critical. We s- invest quite a bit to make sure that the controls are really clear to users, so that everyone knows what their data, how th- how it's their data. In fact, we were the first. Google was the first to say it's your data. You can take it with you. We also, uh, probably more directly to your question, are extremely focused on quality of content, and and um, issues with toxic content, and how do we invest to try and ensure that you're getting authentic content, and so how do how do we uh, really monitor when there are attempts at um, at at basically hij- yeah. hijacking the um, the the opportunity to communicate. What is it that we can do to ensure quality of content, authenticity of content? And that's similarly a place where we're continuing to invest and in up the bar in what we're doing there. We're using both um, people as well as machine learning, and we're also partnering with NGOs. Because to ensure that we have the type of civility and quality of content, we need all of those. Given the, the volume of what we're seeing, we need all of those. And the, the role of authentic, the, of, of NGOs and academics can't be understated. For many of these areas where you're seeing negative content, really um, false content surface, uh, the question often becomes how do you decipher between truth and what is a dog whistle to uh, something that's, you know, takes you to a, a, a worse place. And so we need to partner with NGOs to help us really decipher: is it a sermon or is it a call to arms? <laughs> is this appropriate or is it a dog whistle? And so it's the combination of all of these that enable us to go back to that core mission, which is to uh, organize the world's information, make it universally accessible and useful, be helpful, be responsible and protect really what the user wants. And that's where we are continuing to try and push ourselves and up the game on everything that we're doing.
0: Okay. So yeah. thank you, Ruth. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for your already. <laughs> <laughs>